Hi, I'm Adam Beaumont, founder and director of With Purpose Consulting. Come to you from Melbourne. I'm a strategist, facilitator and regulatory consultant who works with executives, leadership teams and boards to be more effective, more successful and achieve better outcomes for them and their organisations. I want to welcome you to my podcast where we have insightful discussions with prominent experts in the area of strategy, leadership, operation and tactical planning and regulation. The Nobel Prize economist Milton Friedman famously said that the business of business is business and that business's only social responsibility is to increase profits within the rules of the game. Those rules contribute to the science and art of economic regulation, addressing market failures or, alternatively, making markets work better. Economic regulation is effectively government-sponsored intervention in market decisions. Interventions around how you grow the pie and how you divide it up. But how do you ensure everyone gets a fair share? In this podcast, we want to talk about economic regulation. What is it? How does it work? And how does it impact on inequality? To help us in this discussion, I'm joined by Simon Corden. Simon is the chair of the National Regulators Community of Practice, a commissioner with the Victorian Essential Services Commission, and an expert in economic and social policy. He was the economic policy advisor in the Department of Premier and Cabinet in Victoria. He also established the Victorian Competition and Efficiency Commission, uh, worked in Treasury and Finance, the Productivity Commission, and was a director with KPMG. He's very well placed to help us understand what economic regulators do, and why that's important. Simon, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Oh, great to speak to you, Adam. It's uh, great to be able to join this podcast. So, Simon, what is economic regulation? Regulatory guru Ari Freiberg described economic (laughs) uh, regulation as exercising regulatory powers to set prices and to improve the operation of markets, Um, ultimately so consumers have better access to services and service providers get a reasonable return. So, it's really... Um, the regulation of economic activity. And when we say economic reg- activity, like the economy is very broad. So people listen to this going, economic, what, be, be more specific, what economic reg- activity are you talking about? Okay, so the sort of things that economic regulators typically regulate are areas where there's monopoly power. So water authorities, um, landline, phone lines, um, electricity networks, airports, ports, things like that, where there's typically been a seen as areas where there's a lot of uh, the market power of the providers, so you've only got one provider to choose from, rather than areas um, where there's a multitude of, uh, of of service providers in the market. Okay, so if, we, if we've got a, th- a thin market where we've got you know a handful of people operating and selling the same product or the same service to um, uh, consumers then we'll have some sort of economic regulation. But if we've got a thick market where there's a multitude of actors selling the same thing, are we less likely to get economic regulation? Typically, if you're thinking about, um, yeah, we're less likely to see uh, regulation of uh, prices, of access to use of particular facilities, that sort of economic regulation. Yeah, okay. So, so how do economic regulators intervene in the market then? So if we're talking about this thin wedge of the market, what are their tools? How do they intervene and control or protect consumers? So they typically, they'll license people to enter the market. So for example, a major transmission, if there needs to be a major transmission line and there's a lot being um, being built at the moment to connect, so renewable energy sources, windmills, uh, wind turbine farm, wind farms and uh, solar farms to the electricity network, they might license 
uh, a firm, so there'll only be one transmission network. We're not going to have an array of transmission networks. So they'll license one transmission network to run that particular, do that particular project, but then they'll set the prices um, associated with that and may set service standards um, and reliability standards, et cetera. So effectively licensing, so controlling who enters the market and then controlling the price that they sell it on, but that's selling on, can that, is that directly to consumers or can that be selling on to a, to a wholesaler who then sells on to consumers? How does that work? Well, for example, in the landline, NBN, it's selling to uh, retailers. Uh, for example, with your electricity networks, again, it's typically selling to retailers. Most of these big um, monopoly providers aren't selling directly to consumers, as you point out. You know, the airports sell landing rights or sell uh, the right to use the terminals to airlines, not to individual uh, consumers. So, uh, absolutely, it tends to be more uh, controlling uh, business-to-business transactions, but that has obviously has a flow-on effect to consumers. So, by and large, then, the standard consumer or community member is not going to interact with an economic regulator in this setting. For that aspect of it, I suppose what's changed in recent years is a greater focus on the individual consumer react, uh, relationships with uh, some of the providers. So um, some of the economic regulators are looking at directly at uh, the more retail section of the market. So they will also, but then it gets to be less about regulating price um, and more about setting service standards about how they um, how the community interacts with those particular regulators. For example, the ACCC is an economic regulator. Now it's not, it's partly looking at um, monopoly sectors, but also looking at competitive sectors, and consumers may raise issues with them about being misled um, about uh, uh, issues such as that. And consumers, if they have trouble with their energy distributor, so for example, um, as a household, you have the major companies doing the big transmission lines, and then you have the distributor that runs the power down your street. If they're uh, failing to provide quality service, you can complain uh, you can raise a complaint with your economic regulator as well. So um, unplanned works uh, or planned planned upgrades to the electricity network, do they give you the required notice period to allow you to adjust to that? So economic regulation in this setting, so we license people to enter the market, we control the prices that they can on-sell it, either directly to the consumer but seemingly more B2B, business to business. And if there's some aspects of the quality of the service – then an economic regulator can intervene and go, no, no, we don't accept that. You need to provide this this way. How does that play out then in for smaller interactions? Like are the supermarkets, do they, you know, if they've only got three supermarkets in notionally chains, are they part of that same sort of regulated uh, duty holder base? So ACCC, for example, regulates their behaviour. Um, you know, there's a code of practice, I believe, between uh, the grocery companies and the people they buy their products from uh, because, you know, as you point out, it's a pretty concentrated market at the retail level and that affects both people who are selling products to them but also consumers. Um, but that's sort of the part of economic regulation that's uh, less focused on regulating the price to consumers but more focused on their behaviour. So just make sure that they don't collude together, that they don't um, buy up smaller, other smaller retailers and get even more market power. So what would happen if we had no economic regulators? <laughs> like if they suddenly overnight went away, what, what would we see? 
So I think what we would see in those sectors where the monopoly firms are sort of end-to-end, -end, if you think of the old Telecom Australia um, type arrangement, so in countries which don't have those sort of um, effective economic regulation, the prices go up, service quality can go down, innovation can go down. Um, I'm to give you an example, I worked uh, several years ago for the OECD on a project in Mexico. And in Mexico, big chunks of the economy are monopolised. They've got, there's a lot of market power. Um, the uh, telecommunications company, the phone company, even wheat, milk, a whole lot of sectors are very concentrated. And in those, in that economy, what they found was it had a big impact uh, prices were higher, innovation was lower, uh, service quality was lower, but they did work and they identified that most of the, a lot of the harm was actually affecting lower income people because the sort of products where this monopoly power was evidenced represented a big part of the uh, expenditure of low income people. So um, if you don't have uh, effective economic regulators to make the market or to influence the market, then you can get poor social outcomes. Mm, yeah, okay. So in that sense, in terms of re you know economic regulators' role in equality, that concept of growing the pie and then cutting it up neatly in a way that doesn't impact or adversely affect people, you know, this example of um, the regulator's toolkit, control the price, control the entry, control the service, what is the main role of an economic regulator in protecting inequality? Like what are their tools? How do they do it? Can you give an example of you know, how you've seen that work? So, for example, ensuring that there isn't uh, a big firm starts taking over lots of the smaller firms in the market uh, to reduce that concentration um, is one way and to, and which would damage prices and service quality. Um, another example more recently, economic regulators such as the Essential Services Commission that I'm involved in has been intervening in markets in different ways. Uh, we, prior to my joining the commission, there was work on what's called the payment difficulty framework to put tighter rules around how um, energy retailers dealt with their consumers in terms of when those when consumers fell behind in their payments to make sure that there was a appropriate sort of steps to uh, support consumers to uh, try and manage those energy issues. Um, and then more recently, the uh, following on from the Royal Commission into Domestic Violence, the Commission was tasked with uh, trying to work with the energy and the water sector to try and improve how they dealt with people who were suffering from domestic violence. So uh, often, I mean, now, there are lots of frontline services are essential for domestic to address domestic violence, but people experiencing domestic violence have to deal with their bank, with their utility, with their mm -hmm. energy company, all those sort of organisations. And that can be extremely stressful and challenging, particularly because often the financial arrangements that those who can, who can authorise change accounts, all that sort of stuff, can be extremely difficult. So um, the Commission uh, set up uh, a framework to try to work with the energy and the water sector to try and ensure that they dealt with customers who are facing those sort of uh, challenges in a much more sympathetic and understanding way. In, in terms of that framework, did that framework impose obligations on those providing the service, the water yep. retailer? The it, it did. It was developed very collaboratively with the respective sectors, but ultimately it is regulation. It is a requirement. They must do it. They must train their staff in certain ways. They must... Uh, make sure that information is held securely in such a way that doesn't uh, 
get shared within the organisation inappropriately. So there are some very specific must-do, but it's also about a cultural change in these organisations to mm. to um, get people to have that more front of mind when they engage with uh, their customer base. So in that example, why is why is the economic regulator best placed to intervene there in that harm? So I think the argument would be that because we set price and quality and reliability standards, so the economic regulator for these firms that have um, that are subject to licensing by ourselves, we're best placed to put behavioural constraints on them. We already have an existing relationship. We already have existing codes and licensing arrangements. So we're the appropriate regulator for that particular sector. Um, in the same way, if you were trying to get the finance sector, if there were concerns about this, you would probably go for the, the regulator that regulates the finance yeah. sector day to day. So if we, if we were having this discussion 20 years ago and, you know, you were you're, you know, working for an economic regulator or in some of those previous roles you've had, um, certainly involved with them, would you have ever got to the point where you thought, oh, yeah, yeah, an economic regulator is well-placed to intervene in this social harm? Look, when I started at the predecessor to the Productivity Commission, the focus at that stage was very much from this concept that as an economist, uh, we think there are always trade-offs, that if you get a benefit, there are costs, there are no free lunches. Um, there was a sort of the theme was a single instrument to solve a single problem. So the single instrument is economic regulation that should be working at maximising the efficiency of these entities. Um, so it would have and would have taken the view that the social policy objectives, family violence, inclusion, addressing vulnerability, would be better dealt with with other instruments other than economic regulation. I think in the last, particularly in the last 10 years, there's an appreciation that there isn't always a trade-off, that you can, in some cases, improve social outcomes and not at the expense of economic outcomes. And a big theme from the OECD and the IMF, you know, that economic growth and inclusion are complementary, that you can achieve better economic growth through inclusive policies, that they're not there's not a trade-off of one against the other. Now, that's obviously within boundaries. You can't turn water companies and energy companies into social welfare agencies. Sure, yeah. But but there is scope to sort of get a sort of win-win um, through uh, carefully designed policies that promote inclusion uh, without harming economic efficiency. This is Adam Beaumont and you're listening to Conversations with Purpose. My guest today is Simon Corden and we're talking about economic regulation, how markets are regulated and how that impacts on inequality. And is this a, is this a trend that's happening around the world? Surely this isn't just, just here in Australia. Are other economic regulators saying, actually, we are well-placed by virtue of controlling the behaviour of certain organisations to get them to take on additional social considerations or nuance their service delivery to reduce social harm? Look, I haven't done a survey of what's happening around the world. I know that there's a very strong uh, 
move in this direction for some of the economic regulators in the United Kingdom. So Ofgem did its first vulnerability strategy in 2013. Uh, we've been, we've started work on a, a broader vulnerability strategy at the Essential Services Commission. And I know the Australian Energy Regulator, the national regulator for uh, energy markets is also doing work in this area. Um, so, and in the competition policy area, uh, with the sort of work the area of the ACCC's in, there's certainly been a growing literature since the 2000s on how do you um, get inclusion as well as economic growth. At the moment, we're talking about harm and inclusion. What about equitable distribution? Like what's the role of economic regulators to make sure, you know, not only is that pie grown in a way that it doesn't adversely affect the community, but is cut up in a way that is not unreasonable? Like how does an economic regulator make a judgment about what is equitable in distributing economic benefit, or do they? I think that's probably a bit further down the path than economic regulators would be would feel they have an appropriate role. To, the challenge of um, ensuring a more just and equitable society is a function of education policy, it's a function of tax policy, it's a function of uh, social welfare policy. There are a whole lot of um, areas which have got a primacy in this area. The economic mm, regulators yep. are really just dealing at the margin with these issues, but it's really about um, doing the best we can to limit the adverse effects on people who are vulnerable. And uh, to date, we've tended to focus on people who are financially vulnerable, uh, people who get into payment difficulties. But I think there is, and, and more recently at the Commission, we've focused on domestic violence. But there is this question about other forms of vulnerability. You know, is the are the the way the energy market operates? Uh, people with disabilities, uh, uh, people with poor literacy or from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, people with mental health issues, is the way that each of these uh, firms in the markets that we regulate operate? Are there ways to achieve better outcomes for people uh, without it necessarily having a significant impact on efficiency and thus prices. It's interesting because as you were saying that, the thought that jumped into my mind is that, yeah, I take your point around the distribution of the pie is bigger than the regulator's intervention. The regulator is making sure that the way that the market is occurring is appropriate, I guess. In this example of a thin versus a thick market, in a thick market where there's lots of service providers and people are actively competing for your business, they're going to take a strong interest in providing high quality services and um, uh, servicing different markets who have different interests and indeed structuring themselves to access certain markets. Do you think that the, the natural limitation of having a thin market means that companies don't or won't do that in the first instance? They just, well, we don't need to. We've got a fixed customer base. We don't need to try that hard. A thin market, a market where there's a small number of providers, doesn't always lead to um, a lack of consumer focus or poor quality or all the dimensions you mentioned. Australia, for a long time, has had two domestic airlines. Um, sometimes they've had subsidiaries. So, you know, just our subsidiary of Qantas and uh, Tiger was a subsidiary of Virgin. Um, and they compete very vigorously. And then you can have other sectors where there are a large number of providers and they're competing, but not necessarily competing in a way that um, generates the best outcomes for all consumers. Um, 
I think there's been a lot of concern in the last few years or last decade about how competition has operated in the energy market and electricity and gas market. Um, that sometimes uh, there's been a tendency for it not to be very transparent about the difference between the different firms. You know, we have lots of different credit card companies, but credit card interest rates still stood at 21% or whatever it is, yes. 24%. <laughs> so, so you don't necessarily, in a market where there's lots of players, doesn't necessarily lead to competition in a way that uh, benefits the majority of consumers or particularly benefits vulnerable consumers. So is then is it more about the characteristics of the services being offered? You know, is it less about how thin or thick the market is? It's partly about the characteristics. It can be partly about how the market, the market rules, which economic regulators set. So, for example, um, one of the issues in the airline sector a couple of years ago was what's called, uh, more generally on the internet, called drip pricing, where there'd be a price advertised, and then when you go on, you know, click X, and you, you need to pay for this, you need to pay for this, you need to pay for that, and it got to the point. So, so there were, um, yes. and the ACCC yeah. intervened to make sure that whatever the advertised price was a price the product was available for. If an add-on was compulsory, it had to be included in the price. So, if the only way that you could purchase the particular product was to pay 5% extra for credit card and there was no way to avoid that, then that had to be improved. So uh, the ACCC is an economic regulator and that's an example where it's dealing with sort of competition, um, you know, can set the rules of the game to achieve a fair outcome. In the same, yeah, I always sort of think um, another example of a market regulator, it's not an economic regulator, but it's the Australian Football League, AFL. You know, they set the rules of the game, they put all sorts of boundaries around it, and if they set that properly, then there will be very vigorous competition, and if they didn't set the rules of the game, you know, in terms of uh, how players get selected, use of drugs, whatever, uh, performance-enhancing drugs, whatever, then the competition would be less effective. So, um economic regulators aim to set the rules of the game, working with governments who set the legislation to promote effective competition. That's a good example because, you know, the AFL, uh, you know, constantly evolving and changing the rules to make sure that concussion isn't an issue or that there's not other player harm. So I think that is a nice example of saying that their interest is, is competition, but also competition in a safe, equitable um, way that doesn't uh, exasperate vulnerabilities of the players. If you were reflecting on your career as you know as you've seen it and and seen it from lots of different angles, would you say that there's a, a growing uh, sort of mood to let the market do its thing? Or would you say actually there's a stronger level of um, more sophisticated interventions that have occurred in the last 20 years to make the market um, run more effectively? One of the innovations or uh, changes in, in the field of economics since I was uh, at university is behavioural economics, which is really economists laying claim to behavioural to behavioural <laughs> science. Um, uh, I think we, the economics profession even gave a Nobel Prize to someone who was a behavioural scientist <laughs> and has no economic training. But, um, you know, I think that has led to a lot more sophisticated understanding of when markets and market interventions uh, don't work well, don't uh, conform to the traditional assumptions of economics. Um, so that's made people think more carefully about 
some of the design issues. And so they're behavioural scientists helping with how do you um, how do you requirement time how bills are prepared so when energy companies for example present their bills there might be rules about how they have to present particular aspects of it um, to promote more equitable outcomes to promote more inclusion uh, so those sort of initiatives and the behavioral science has been really helpful in trying to understand uh, how markets can be imperfect if you don't if you're not mindful, they're always imperfect, but they can be made less imperfect by being mindful of those behavioural distortions. Mm. And so when you think about behavioural intervention from an economic regulator, what, what what's the best example that you can recall where you go, oh, yeah, so-and-so did this and this was the outcome? I don't know if this is the best example because um, time will tell. Um one of the a couple of in, in interventions that we're working through at the Central Services Commission, uh, the best offer message. So at a at a certain period of time, your energy bill has to have a note on it that says whether the current uh, um, contract you're on is the best that's mm-hmm. available from that mm-hmm. retailer, and so that's an intervention designed to encourage people to to shop around. Alan Fells did a review of uh, insurance pricing in New South Wales, and that requires that when you get your renewal notice for your insurance, it has to say what your premium was last year. Um, Again, uh, a small requirement. I don't think any of the insurers were particularly – they weren't doing it before. It doesn't force you to – shop around, doesn't force you to ring up your uh, energy company or your insurer and say, can you give me a better price or look around? But it's prompt um, a nudge, I think, is the sort of language that we use for that. So they're two good examples. It's interesting. I I remember, you know, years ago now, you used to go into the supermarket and it would have, you know, the particular thing you're buying, you might be buying flour or sugar, um, and it would have underneath the price tag, the price per kilogram or the price per, you know, sheets of um, toilet paper, Um, Mm. like really clever way to enable parity between different products. Is that an example of where an economic regulator has went, actually, you need to do this? Like, is this... Is this is this a real life living example that people see in their day to day lives in that sense? Yeah, that's absolutely. It's called unit pricing. It's a great example of where um, there's been a regulatory intervention in the market that may have been done. I don't. The history of that once, I can't recall exactly where that was done by the regulator. It was done by government through legislation. But absolutely, that's about creating not just more information uh, for consumers to guide their choices, but in a form that makes it um, more suitable for them to help them understand the choices. I think there's a review of that going on at the moment because it's interesting, a lot of these sort of interventions, these behavioural ones, you really can't be certain how they're going to work until you yep. try it. So the sort of labelling of, you know, stars on on products. I mean, one that you'll be familiar with is in the energy sector, those sort of star ratings on yep. appliances, the energy yep. efficiency ones from your work in environmental regulation. Um, I think that's been remarkably successful in driving the average number of stars of products. I think there was a review a few years ago. And the other one is the sort of NCAP ratings for cars. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. All cars in Australia have to meet a certain st- safety standard, 
but um, now you know, many cars uh, have those sort of ratings on them, and I think that's led to uh, a change in uh, the behaviour of the retailers, of the, of the whole people who provide those cars, car manufacturers. So that's another example. Is it fair to say, because economic regulation is quite broad, like we talked about those the tools that are used to intervene, but we're talking about here around using sort of informational regulation, the idea of providing information to a consumer or a purchaser, them to make better judgments. Does that, it clearly gets captured in the behavioural um, nudge type concept, but does that fit in the economic regulation bucket or is this a separate thing? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I don't think economic regulators or economic regulation would want to lay claim to informational regulate, you know, using information because it's used across a whole array of, of different, by different regulators. Um, you know, it's as much psychology as it is economics. Um, it's not something, uh, you know, that sort of better information is used in safety regulation, yeah, environmental completely. regulation. Yeah. So, I don't know that economic regulators would want to lay claim to that particular intervention um, alone. It's almost like the other regulators are muscling in on your space, yeah? Like they're going, oh, well, there's a way to well, make people change behaviour. Uh, well, <laughs> look, I mean, all regulators, as you know, have, uh, is pro- you know, what they primarily try and do is change the behaviour of individuals yeah. and companies. So that's uh, that's just regulation rather than any particular sector. I think what, as a, my work more... Um, in regulatory design, not just focusing on economic regulation, but work earlier. Um, you know, the faith in information as a way to change behaviours has changed. You know, 20 years ago, just tell people and they'll tell people the information and, you know, give them a product disclosure statement or a, put a label on a product and people's behaviour will change. And what I think all regulators know now is a lot of the time people won't read that material. If they read it, they won't understand it. If they understand it, they won't necessarily change their yeah. behaviour. Uh, so our faith in information disclosure per se as a way to change behaviour, whether it's to help people make better energy or water, better choices on their in the sectors that economic regulators deal with or elsewhere across the economy, we've realised it's a much more nuanced challenge. I think we could, this is a whole other conversation we could have, I think, around um, informational regulation. But what I'm, what I'm taking away is that the you know, economic regulation at its purest is very much in that thin market space. Certainly that control of monopolies or firms with market powers is an important aspect of economic regulation. But there is lots of economic regulation where they're not thin mm. markets. So the ACCC, for example, looks at misleading and deceptive conduct in areas where there's not necessarily a, a thin market. You know, the, the, the ACCC has done actions against uh, for misleading, deceptive conduct in for firms that are in competitive yeah. markets. Um, uh, and, and and the reason they do that is to keep them as competitive markets, right? You can't have two firms competing against each other if one's on performance or two footy teams performing against each other if one's on performance and enhancing drugs and the other yeah. isn't. You're not going to get fair competition in the same way that it's important for uh, firms not to do misleading and deceptive conduct. Um, 
back to where the sector, where where the energy market, for example, one of the interventions that's happened at both the state and federal level for the retail level is to set um, default prices. So there's the um, default market offer at the national level and there's a Victorian default offer at the Victorian level. And their sort of prices, now their prices are offered to some consumers who may choose not to shop around, but they also set a reference as to which all other prices have to be compared. So it used to be you'd go onto the website of a energy company and say, oh, 50% off, and it would be 50% off mm-hmm. their own yeah. uh, default yeah. price, right? Now, now it's 50%, now it has to be off this a standard price and so now there's 7% off, 8% off, 10% off. They're still competing but you can, if you know if two retailers are offering 7% off the Victorian default offer, you know that that's absolutely the same price whereas previously one could say it's 40% off its standing yeah. offer, another could say it's 15% off its standing offer. So some of those rules about how prices are presented, so not managing, not controlling the price, but how they're presented can enable people to make better choices. And that, I think that seems to be the the, the sort of takeaway from me that economic regulators actually help consumers make better choices. And in some instances, that's stopping some from entering the market or controlling their prices or um, controlling the way they behave. I mean, one thing that's important is I'd say 15, 20 years ago, there was a lot of faith that if you gave the consumers the right information, they would shop around and they would get the best price. And there wasn't as much recognition that there were some consumers who are either unable or unwilling to shop around. Um, and that you needed to protect them in some ways. So they're putting more boundaries around the market to make sure that people who are unable to engage don't get um, exploited. So the consideration that's really changed then in the last 20 years is how vulnerable people consume that information and therefore how economic regulators intervene in light of that vulnerability. Yeah, and what sort of boundaries you put on how the market operates. I think this is one of those conversations where people will listen to this and go, I think I'm a bit clearer on what economic regulators do. <laughs> but I think they'll also go, wow, there's a there's a myriad of different things that you know they do in this space and it could be much broader um, than simply controlling prices and regulating behavior. So, I mean, it's, this has been a fascinating conversation. I think the things I'm taking away here is that economic regulation is is more than just addressing that sort of market failures around monopolies. Um, you know, how markets function, how products are sold, it seems that they can greatly impact vulnerable people. Um, and whilst I think Milton Friedman's probably not wrong when he talks about the business of business is business, it's clear that as long as businesses are operating uh, in society when there's some degree of vulnerable people, um, government and professional regulators are going to do some level of, of, of intervention. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks for uh, sharing your insights and and taking the time. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Adam. For more about Simon, you can follow him on Twitter at Simon Corden. Or to learn more about the role of the Essential Services Commission in Victoria, go to esc.vic.gov.au. This is Adam Beaumont. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations with Purpose. Please subscribe. And if you'd like more information, please visit my website at witpurpose.consulting. Bye for now.